This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 38. I think people get promoted past their level of expertise, and we don't teach them how to lead and lead effectively when they're not an expert. All right, so let's take one of my favorite running examples. Somebody who's head of legal, a big role, got big team underneath them. Their job is being the legal guardian of the company, giving advice, knowing that, and so on. We promote them outside the legal department. They don't necessarily know how to do any of those jobs or be effective in any of those jobs. Now, to make that transition, she has got to learn to lead a whole other part of the organization that for which she is not going to be the expert. So it has nothing to do with competence, learning how to lead people who have the expertise you don't have. And that's a secret. Why is it so important that you learn to lead outside of your area of expertise? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Before I get to this week's guest, I want to take a moment to thank you for listening to the Future of HR podcast. The reason the podcast has continued to grow each month is because you've been spreading the word with your friends, colleagues, and on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for doing this, and please continue to tell other HR pros about the podcast. It's the best way to help the show grow and reach more next-generation HR leaders like yourself. One question that people ask me often is, why did I start the Future of HR podcast? To answer that question, I wanted to read a recent review of the Future of HR received on Apple Podcasts. This show is a goldmine. This has become one of my go-to podcasts to keep me up to date and continually learning in the field. If you're interested in IO psychology, talent development, or strategic HR, this show delivers. JP's guests have been high caliber, accomplished, but most of all, passionate practitioners looking to share their ideas and not just push their service, product, and book like you hear on some other shows. If you're looking for actual insights you can apply to your career, this is the place. Thank you, Nick A., for that amazing review. I started the podcast to make a difference in your career and the careers of next-generation HR leaders like yourself. With that, my guest this week is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Wanda is an internationally known expert on leadership and works with top teams of some of the largest and most respected corporations around the world. I've been wanting to have Wanda on the podcast because I think every HR leader can benefit from the concepts in her latest book titled, You Can't Know It All, Leading an Age of Deep Expertise. In writing her book, she draws on her experience watching men and women transition to more senior roles where the team knows more than the leader. In these situations, Wanda advocates that leaders should not give up their expertise. Rather, it's that leaders must learn to lead at times as the expert and at other times as the non-expert. This is what Wanda calls spanning, or a leader who can effectively span across knowledge domains. I know you'll get a lot out of this conversation with Wanda as we discussed the common leadership beliefs that she passionately disagrees with, why she believes people get promoted past their level of expertise and what to do about it, the importance of executive transitions and why expecting that execs will figure it out is a recipe for failure, why it's so important that leaders learn how to lead people who have expertise they don't have, 
and her advice for female leaders who want to move from being perceived as operational to being strategic, and much more. Wanda, welcome to Future of HR podcast. Thank you for joining us today. How are you? I'm great, and it's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate the invitation. We're excited to have you and really dig into not only your book, but your experience in the leadership development space, especially around female leadership and what can actually help accelerate their careers. But before we jump into that, I really wanted to talk about your journey, journey of becoming an expert in leadership development. Where does that passion for these topics come from? This passion comes from being 16 years old and trying, it's my same question I've had since I was 16, trying to understand how people make sense of their world. I mean, you see people in all sorts of shades of life and how do they see the world? How do they make sense of it? How do they make decisions? How do they act? How do they move? How do they inspire other people? So it's been a lifelong journey. But I think if like mine, like anybody else's, the career isn't a linear path. It takes a bunch of twists and turns. So the simplest way through this one, JP, is I describe myself as a reformed academic, meaning I do have a PhD. I was a faculty member. I was an associate dean. I ran a program at Fuqua School of Business at Duke University. It means I've done the academic stuff. But I found I cared more about the application. So I care about the science. I care about the research. I care about all of that. But I really care deeply about what do we do with it because the research isn't worthwhile if we can't do something with it. So I've moved myself more over time towards the coaching and speaking and training kind of work because I can do the application. And so when you were 16, you had this innate curiosity about how people yeah. lived and why they made their choices yeah. and what motivated them. And did that lead you into academia? Like, how did you get into leadership development academia? Because I think uh, we always think about that differently. There was a while when I thought education might be the route. And that was an easy thing to do after undergrad and to see if I thought that's a place to begin to help people reframe their worldviews or expand their worldviews or so on. But I get frustrated with the limits of what I could do within an educational format, meaning a traditional educational format. So I went back to do my PhD in psychology and thinking that I would be the traditional faculty member in psychology. And along the way, a really dear friend, Chris Puto, said, you're in the wrong field. And it took me about two years before I called him back and said, Chris, tell me again why I'm in the wrong field. And he said, you belong in business. So I went over to the business school checked in and said, okay, so I think I'm interested in making this transition from psych into business. I had my PhD at that point. And I did. I taught an entry-level course and fell in love with it. Absolutely. I found my intellectual home in the business world because that's where people have to learn to make a difference with other people or you're not going to succeed in the business. Once I found it, it was the right spot for me. So you moved into business, but it was really around talent and people yeah. that was driving the business, which is so yeah. unique. Did it take a while for people to accept you in the business school or did you right away just have credibility? I worked really hard at that credibility and there were all sorts of rumors. When I first started teaching MBAs, there was wonderful rumors going around that I had been a former executive at Kodak or something like that. I was like, that's not true. But you know, when you're just starting with MBA students, you're not keen to kill those rumors too quickly. But I worked very hard at having some practical examples. And JP, I actually started in marketing. 
not in organizational behavior or in HR, which is, as far as I'm concerned, a brilliant place to make that transition because you're looking at the customers, the consumers, what's driving them to make the decisions that they're making and how were we making money as a result. So it was a really good format for me. And it was later that I got into the leadership space. Do you want the story? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So at the time, so I'm a junior faculty member. And at the time, we were reorganizing our curriculum at Duke at the FUPA School to create these things called integrated learning experiences. Lofty sounding title, great concept. I chuckle at it today because they had no clue what they were making that decision about, but it sounded really good. And the first one was going to be on team and leadership. And all of our competitor schools were doing ropes courses as their way of doing team and leadership. Now, remember I said early in my career, I was interested in education. Guess what I was interested in? Experiential education. Guess where I spent my undergraduate was with an outward bound like program, um, undergraduate years. It was my my sideline work. So I kind of put my hand up and said, I have some experience with this. I have some opinions, a lot of opinions about what works and doesn't work. And suddenly I'm in charge of our first year, 330 students walking into Fuqua, their first experience of integrated learning um, experiences. And there we are. And after that, I never made it back to the marketing classroom. From then on, it's been team and leadership. It's terrific. And that was very big in that time frame, kind of outward bound, a lot of ropes course, team building. I think it's shifted a little bit now, but there's probably still a place for it. And you can really have a, a bonding experience. There's ropes courses done well, actually have a great benefit for team, but you got to choose the right. It's not... One of the things that I refused to do was to put people up in the air because if you put people up high, you've got the fear factor. And so you're dealing with the individual fear, not with the team and the team support. So we did activities that were on the ground that were more problem solving and didn't require upper body strength. So they weren't particularly male dominant. Hmm. I could talk all day long about those. But <laughs> I, did, anyway. I think it could. I agree with you. Marketing is a great place for HR people to start their career where you're doing a lot of times is we are helping to sell organizational concepts, whether it's engagement, the strategy, the business, a benefits program to our employees or team members. And you can't think of that as, I think, in really having an agenda in a negative way, like you're selling something they don't want. It's really tapping into what will resonate and motivate that team. So I think marketing, it makes sense. I actually owned a marketing company early in my career. I left consulting, did that for a little while, but that's a whole other story and podcast. But the reality is I think there's that marketing bent is sort of in me as well. And I think it it plays well for HR people. So it's cool you did that. It teaches you what the strategy is in some ways, how to think about the strategy in terms of reaching our marketplace and our competitive position, because you can't do marketing without thinking about those two. And I think that's just really useful for HR people to understand it. Really useful. You've also spent the majority of your career now studying and working with leaders, like we talked about. What's a commonly held belief about leadership that you passionately disagree with? All right. Can I do two instead of one? All right. My number one is that people believe that there is an ideal way to lead. So pick up any book anywhere written by anyone, including various ones that I've been involved in as well. And it says, here's the answer. And there is no one answer. 
It all depends on the circumstances, what you're driving towards, the team that you're leading, the state of the company. I mean, there's no single one way. And I, I just wish we could get rid of that idea and then start saying what works and what circumstances. So that's my first one. My second one is actually much more important for HR people, I think, because there is a commonly held belief that when people hit big transitions, they will just figure it out. So the transition that my book is about from being the expert leader who knows everything that the team is doing to being a leader where the team knows more than you know, something I call spanning leadership. That transition is extremely difficult and we give people very few clues on how to do it. But equally, when you're going up to the senior level, executive level, and you're trying to pitch to the executive level, you're going to become an ELT member. We give people very little help in understanding how that is different than just the base of where you were before that or the couple of years before that. So we don't help people with transitions in ways that would make a lot of careers better. That's such a great insight. When you promote somebody or they become a senior executive, they're already really smart. They've been successful. And we're like, well, they've got it, right? They should be able to figure this out. And then they don't figure it out or they flame out for political reasons. They didn't get the buy-in. They didn't show wins or they they tried to push too hard. All the different reasons why people don't make it at the executive level. And we wonder what happened. But we just blame the person. But your book is terrific because out of the comfort zone and really what that book's about is how you make these transitions. And one of the things we often hear people say is, well, he or she got promoted because, you know, beyond that level of competence, they right. just, you know, it's the Peter principle. Why do you think this occurs? And more importantly, what can we do to fix the problem? Okay, I think it has nothing to do with competence. I mean, absolutely. That's not the reason people don't make it. I think people get promoted past their level of expertise and we don't teach them how to lead and lead effectively when they're not an expert. Right. So let's take one of my favorite running examples. Somebody who's head of legal, a big role, got a big team underneath them. Their job is being the legal guardian of the company, giving advice, knowing that and so on. We promote them outside the legal department. They don't necessarily know how to do any of those jobs or be effective in any of those jobs. And many of these heads of legal are actually really good candidates. One I'm thinking of in particular, a female, made a run at being CEO and did a really good run, looked like a really, really good candidate for a whole host of reasons. Now, to make that transition, she has got to learn to lead a whole other part of the organization that for which she is not going to be the expert. So it has nothing to do with competence, learning how to lead people who have the expertise you don't have. Hmm. That's a secret. We don't teach it. Why don't we teach that, do you think? What misconceptions are holding us back from talking yeah. about competence versus expertise? Well, we teach general management. And with the notion that expertise is that subject matter expert, that single individual contributor, and the two extremes. So you're either a, a single expert SME or you're a management person, a leader. And what you need there are general management skills. But neither of those are really true. The bulk of the jobs, the bulk of the executive jobs and the bulk of the middle management jobs are some hybrid in between. And I would love to kill the t title general management because I really think you can't ever today in a knowledge economy lead with just general skills and know nothing about how the business works. 
You get rejected quickly. You make bad calls. You've got to know something. You have to know everything, but you've got to know something. And then on that, we build. So I just think we've divided into more black and white than it actually really is. I also think we discredit the fact that people can be expert leaders. Like I remember a guy I worked with in an insurance company who was the chief risk officer for that insurance company. There was no model, no technical aspect of risk throughout the entire globe that happened under his world that he didn't know and couldn't do himself. Okay. That's what's happening today in ways that we're not accounting for. So people learn to lead when they know more than everybody else. And anyway, we're not doing the blend. The story for me is it's a hybrid. Talk more about the concept in your book around what you call E-leaders, the experts, and S-leaders, the spanners. Just explain the difference between the two. I know you've been hinting around a little bit more, but talk about the skills, the capabilities, and what makes them really different. All right. So E-leaders, expert leaders, derive their credibility because of their depth of knowledge. Their job fundamentally is to control quality and risk. So as an expert leader, you know everything that's going on underneath you. You could do the work of everyone on your team if you had the time and the capacity to do it. That's what it means to be the expert leader. That means when the team brings you a problem, you can technically help them solve that problem. It usually also means that the network that taps your resources need your expertise. So your credibility, your brand, your reputation are derived because of your expertise knowledge. And frequently we put up with less than ideal executive presence or sometimes less than ideal behaviors because we over-index on the value of the expertise. Okay? That's the expert side. On the spanning side, and I say spanning because your job is not to know nothing, but is to span across domains. Where I have a little bit of knowledge on those domains, and maybe some depth in one, I'm spanning. And I'm looking for ways of joining the dots, and I'm looking to elevate the value I add by breadth, not by depth. And my job isn't about quality and risk. My job is about strategic priority and focus. My job is about helping my team, not through solving the problems, but asking intelligent questions that get them to think differently, or by introducing them to my peer network, or by giving them visibility, or by tapping resources and information from people I know, and again, connecting the dots for my team. That's how I add value to them. That is the work I do because I can't do the work my team does. And it requires that I have great relationships and a lot of trust and executive presence and a whole host of other things. All right. I'm going to ask a silly question. Which one's harder to be the E leader or the S leader in your perspective? Each has its own challenge. So the E leader staying on top of everything and making sure that everything is managed. Most people struggle with that because they struggle with the capacity of it. And so they become a little bit perfectionist as leaders. They can tend towards micromanagement. They can burn teams out because the teams can't keep up with them. So there are challenges there for sure. It's easier to feel like you're in your comfort zone, quote unquote, when I know my content and I know it as well as anybody else, then I don't have to deal with the imposter syndrome or any of those other lack of confidence pieces. In the spanning leadership, the challenge is I don't have the depth and I have to trust people to do it. I can't. I'm going to know something, 
So that's the only way I'm going to know if it makes sense, if it's joined up. But my job is really looking across and talking to many different kinds of people, trying to pull the best out of those people. And I'm using inspiration and emotion as my way of persuading, not my facts. It's like two totally different models for how you lead, and each has its own challenges. And it'd be really pragmatic, maybe break this down for HR, if I get this right. If you're an e-leader, you're an expert, you might be in talent management or compensation, and you really know that's up and down, right? You know you could do that job to your point. And then you become an S-leader if all of a sudden now you are the CHRO, and you've got to go across benefits for the first time, employer relations, talent acquisition, Right. Yep. Or maybe broader. Is that or kind of how broader. I have to think about it? Yeah. That's exactly how I'm thinking about it. Or you could be not as high as the CHRO, but decide that you're going to take a stint in operations, for example, and step away from the HR space and go into an operating role. And suddenly you are not going to know the content there that your team might know. Makes sense. And so then the skills are a lot different because you're really starting to move from, I've got the knowledge, I know I can do it too. I have influence skills, the people skills, the social skills to get things done. To get other people to do it. The fundamental difference between the e-leader, the e-leader is the doer and executor or can do and can execute. That's their hallmark, trademark. The S leader is the enabler. You can't do it. You have to enable the team to get it done. And now let's talk if I'm an e-leader and I want to build the skills of being an S leader because I hopefully want to have a, maybe an enterprise level role, yeah. what should I focus on and how can I practice these skills without moving into that S role? Yeah. There are about 20 skills I think you need, by the way. So we're going to cover all of those here. So they are in the book. book. They're in the Sorry. book for sure. But for example, one of the big things for an e-leader moving, trying to develop the S leader skills, first off, don't leave your day job and jump wholeheartedly into the S leadership space first. Do some small tests. So I often say to people, there are lots of projects to get involved in, volunteer activities, run a charitable event, run a team event, join any of the network organizations like the Women's Network and lead there. So you get some practice of leading outside your area of expertise and then talk to people about it. Talk to people about what you're learning in those. And that helps build the muscle and the confidence that you can do it, right? And then you want to take on responsibility next for something like, say, a big project that is a bit outside your zone of expertise, but you're still holding on to your day job. So it's gradually moving yourself away, not a wholesale jump. The, there are three fundamental questions, though, to make the transition back and forth. One is, how am I adding value? So what's my unique role in adding value to this team and this organization from the role that I'm in? The second is what's the work I am accountable for doing that I have to do. So am I doing it or am I enabling it? And the third is how am I interacting with people around me, particularly around persuasion? Really interesting. And I think it's really why I wanted to have you on the podcast, Juana, because I think more people need to understand this concept and more people need to read your book. Because if you're in leadership development, or even a leader who's you know leading a function or CHRO, you need to understand these concepts, right? HR leaders need to understand when you're enterprise or expert versus spanning, how do you help? And probably help us assess someone if they have the capabilities to span. Yeah. Because not every e-leader 
probably is really capable of building influence. I don't well, know. What I see, what I have seen, the reason I wrote the book, the thing I've seen for 10, 15 years is when I describe the transition for people, it's like the light bulbs go off. They go, why hasn't somebody told me before? This is why I feel stuck where I am in my job. Now I know what's missing for me to be able to take that next step in my career. I've got it. I've got my agenda. And so as HR people, we should be describing that transition in a clearer way so people can decide, do I really want it? And if so, how am I going to go about learning the skills I need to get there? And I just think it's important. I think people are, they hear the message that we got to figure out what's holding me back, but there's no real answer to that. And I think this model is an answer to it. I agree. And I've always you know, found you really are pragmatic with your advice on how people can take the steps forward because there's a lot of advice, like get more executive presence, be more strategic. You're like, what does that mean? Asking people to break that down is so important. And sometimes people don't want to say the right answer because maybe the answer is not politically correct in their mind or they just can't actually define it. No, yeah. But, but if they don't know, we can't get better at it. So I think That's what you've right. done in... And in the book is really pragmatically shown kind of that path and some behaviors that make sense for people can try if they feel that they're stuck in one of those two leadership roles, which we all kind of are actually. Yeah. 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 We use a lot of phrases that are very hard to action. And, you know, I, all through the book, I've taken those phrases and try to break them down. What is this thing executive presence about? How do you do it? What does it look like? What are the behaviors? And when I have the behaviors, then I can go and acquire the skills to do it. But you do the same on any phrase you're hearing anywhere throughout your career. You spend a lot of time coaching female leaders. which, And so you said the transition from an E leader to an S leader can be particularly difficult for women. Why is this so? And what can companies do about it to make this better? Okay. It's not unique to women. And it's true for minorities of all walks of life as well. Look, if I am not like the majority... So I'm different than the majority in any capacity. Then I'm constantly trying to figure out how do I fit in? And one of the easiest ways of fitting in is to let my content knowledge be the thing that people come to me for. And I just described the expert leader position. So super easy. And then the organization is also super comfortable with that because they can say, yes, Wanda, she's the woman who knows blah, 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 blah. And that's great. And everybody will come to me and I can feel very good about my position. It lets my work speak for itself. It keeps me out of the political chase. I don't really have to network hard. I don't really have to self-promote because my expertise is speaking for itself. And that creates a comfort zone a comfort zone for me and a comfort zone for the organization because the organization can count on me to get it done. So everybody is happy and that maintains a status quo because to take that next step, I've got to leave my expertise and go deal with the politics and the self-promotion and the confidence issues and lead in a space where my expertise, my credibility, quote unquote, is not exactly speaking for itself. And that is just scary to most women and to most organizations. Organizations hold people in place and so do women hold people in place. 
So the secret, the more important piece is what do we do about this one? One, we have to start explaining to women where they are in their stage of their career and what it will take next to get to that next step. So if she wants to be an expert leader, then great, fantastic. Please, though, can we explain to her the limitations that go with that? So she's making a smart choice. If she wants to move into that spanning space, then we need to start giving her the skills and capabilities, the explanations, the ways of developing it. Okay. And yes, this is where sponsoring and mentoring comes into place. It's at that point. She doesn't need it as an expert leader, but she will need it to cross that Rubicon and be able to lead outside of her expertise. So that's one piece. The other thing that I have found tremendous success with for my clients is bringing a group of women together as a cohort, let's say 20, 25 women at the same level who are all struggling with the same kind of issues, what's next in my career, and helping them understand that it isn't personal. It's the stage in the career. And then build that camaraderie so they don't feel alone. They back each other, they support each other, and you will find a good proportion of them catapult their careers forward as a result. There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and there's an article you wrote with Rob Kaiser yeah. a while back, yeah. but one of the key premises that really struck with me, and you guys use an example of Disneyland. Yes. And this family goes to Disneyland. It was actually, it might've been the dad's idea, I guess. Like, let's go to Disneyland. The mom plans the entire trip, packs the bags, you know, everything. The itinerary is terrific. An amazing Disneyland trip. They're on the plane ride home. The kids go, Dad, thank you for the Disneyland trip. What a great idea, right? And Mom, who planned the entire trip and did everything, was not maybe recognized or thanked as much. And of course, the analogies in organizations where sometimes women get stuck in these operational roles, they're operationally excellent, they're driving things, but they're not in the top seat. They're supporting Mm -hmm. potentially a man. And you talk about the fact that this is, because women can be perceived as being more hands-on execution versus strategic thinking is one of the things holding them back. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. yeah. It's two sides. Okay. So if I am an expert leader or a super doer or a major organizer and my whole brand is derived around that, then as soon as dad has the idea, I'm on it. Let's go. I've got it all organized. Okay. And I default to what I already know how to do. There would be another way to organize that Disneyland trip. For example, we could have a family dinner, which we said somebody's got to book the hotel, somebody's got to get the car, somebody's got to get the tickets, somebody's got to organize the food. You're doing this, you're doing that. You know, there's another way to do it than to step in and do it all yourself. But women tend to default to that comfort of I know how and I can go and do it and I will go do. Whereas to rise in the organization, you've got to start using that strategic muscle. Where's the idea? Where's the opportunity? And how do I sell people on that idea and push it forward without getting stuck in the weeds of execution, getting other people to execute? And it's it that move is what we find women really struggle with. Now, equally, the organization is very happy to have mom do all the work. Like the family is very happy that she did it all and they didn't have to do anything. But it doesn't get recognition as much as it should, perhaps. 
Yeah. And then they also can feel good. Hey, she's one of our senior leaders. She does great. She's my right-hand person. Exactly. You know, you can kind of rationalize it. Of course. She's a seat at the table. She's executing the plan. Right. But it's different than being the strategic leader. This is the plan. Here's the idea. And then delegating that out. That's right. That's right. What are some things that women can do to kind of shift that, right? Because maybe you are a doer, one of the doers, and you want to be more strategic. How do you start to kind of push back and get some things off your plate to have that time to think? Stop trying to do it all. Stop trying to know it all and stop trying to do it all. Part of that means it may take somebody longer to get something done than you, and it may not be done as well as you would do it. But you have to stop and ask, is it really worth it for me to spend my time doing that? Can I live with it that it's a little bit different, a little bit less than ideal? That's the number one. Number two, start, instead of saying, I will do it, start waiting five minutes before you volunteer. And you can even say to your boss or to one of your teammates, hey, would you, JP, willing be, be willing to pick this up? I'm out of capacity this month. You can throw that I to somebody that. else. Mm-hmm. And you have to learn how to get others involved in doing the work. Not doing it yourself get others involved in doing the work. Really great advice. Let's talk about next generation female leaders. This podcast is for the next generation of HR leaders. But think about, you know, up and coming female leaders who want to advance their career, maybe they're starting to see some of the things that we're talking about here. What advice would you have for them so they can avoid some of these pitfalls or just more fast track their way to, to career success? All right. Okay, so for the entry-level women in the organization, I'm going to tell you, get your depth first. You need an area of expertise. It is a knowledge economy. That is what is going to be your calling card and your base from which you do other things. So depth first in whatever your area is, and then we start looking for breadth. And we start looking for breadth that give you perspective about other parts of the organization, not just the area that you know in depth. So let's say you're in a product area, that might be getting breadth in other product areas. Let's say you're in a functional area that might be going to an operating role. Just broaden on the organization, depth first and then broaden. So that's my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice, please, 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 please stay close to the cash. If you're close to where the company is making money, you will have lots more opportunities than if you're in a place where people are spending the money, as in a corporate center. Now, that's not to say that corporate center HR isn't a great job. I don't disagree with that at all. But your opportunity is going to be broader if you spend some time close to the cash and then come back to your functional areas. I think that's really important. And I do believe that for HR. I believe that HR should go out to the business, do a business role, and then come back to HR. I think they'd be much better, much stronger professionals. So that's my second piece of advice. And then as you're broadening, find people who will help you. No one's going to show them to you. They're not hanging out on a tree and you go and pluck one. You've got to go and find. Go find people you like. Go find people you admire. Ask them for advice. If it works, come back again and again and again and just nurture those relationships because you need them to find the breadth opportunities and to succeed in the breadth. And then my last statement to every woman out there is you have more power than you realize. 
Stop abdicating your power. Step up, take control where you have it, move it forward. What an amazing advice. Love what you just talked about there. So, so helpful for a lot of reasons. Not only for us as a man to help make sure we're helping advance women's careers as well, but just such great advice for anyone starting their career as a female. And frankly, a man as well, but I think women even more so. Last question for you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Okay, I get to be a little controversial now, so I'm going to say options. I think we're entering a world where people expect and want more options. So options on how they develop themselves, options on the path of their career, options, of course, on benefits. That's what we think about. Options on how we work, where we work, when we work. Options. I think we're looking for options. And I think we have got to get smarter at how to serve up options for our employees. And I think that's going to be the watchword for HR. Options. Wanda, a great word. I also think step into your power could be one as well. I'd love that. Thank you so much for being on the Future of HR podcast. It was an awesome conversation. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Wanda for helping us understand the importance of leading when you are not the expert. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps us with our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Ola Snow, CHRO at Cardinal Health, which is number 15 on the Fortune 500 list and has over 46,000 mission-driven partners striving each day to advance healthcare and improve lives. In our conversation, Ola and I go deep on why she believes you need to seek out and surround yourself with truth-tellers and why having a listening strategy is important to driving culture. Ola is an amazing leader, and I know that her ideas and her personal career journey will inspire you. You won't want to miss this conversation. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.